Zeke, how are we doing? It is almost unbelievable to me that I'm in a room speaking to actual living, breathing people. And so if you're here inside, welcome to Rocky Peak. If you're joining us on the patio, or especially if you're joining us online, I am so thankful that you're tuning in and joining us for our, on, for our weekend services. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I'm excited because I get to continue the series we've been in for the last couple of months. But before I do that, I've just got one quick announcement I wanted to give you, is that we are actually, as everybody is settling to life, kind of coming back, so to speak, we're actually going to be postponing our baptism services for a little bit later in the near future. We're going to give people a little bit more of an opportunity to just get comfortable with what's going on. Plus, that gives us an opportunity to offer it after Easter and after the partnership, where both of those are going to provide opportunities for people to not only get baptized, but people to just make a commitment to the Lord in the first place. And we would love to be able to respond with that opportunity of baptism when that happens. So we'll be communicating when that's going to be in the near future. But for now, no cheats. Bibles, you ready? All right, I'm going to pray. We're going to jump in. Jesus, it is about you. All of this, life, creation, our universe, it is about you. And what a beautiful truth that is. Jesus, I'll be the first one to confess that I try to make it about me. I try to make it about my will, my hopes, my desires, and What I want, what I feel isn't always bad or wrong, but sometimes it tries to take your place. And so Jesus, I'm grateful for this community in person and online. I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful that we get to come together and I'm grateful that we get to open up your word. It is far more than ink on a page or word on the screen. It is the voice of you, you, King Jesus, reminding us of who you are of who we are as a result, that you are the king. It is your name that saved us from sin and death, not mine or anyone else's. And so Jesus, as we again open up your word, I just beautifully thank you for the words of John the Baptist that I always commit before a time of teaching. May you as our king become more and may I as the communicator become less so that we remember who's really in charge here. And it's in your name that we all said, amen. Well, Rocky Peak, this, like I said, this weekend, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in for the last couple of months called Signs to Path to Life. And if you're here for the first time, let me take a few moments just to bring you up to speed. This series is an in-depth study in the life and teachings of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and one of his closest friends, a man that we call the Apostle John. Now, John is writing his gospel, the gospel of John, near the end of his life. And as he writes, what he's doing is he is looking back and he is inviting us to come on a journey with him as he takes us through his experiences with the person of Jesus. And in particular, John is going to highlight seven supernatural signs that alongside what else he writes, they're meant to help us understand who Jesus truly is, why Jesus came, and what is the path that leads us to experience life in our individual lives. 
And for those of you that were here over these last two weeks in particular, we, were, we began John chapter three, in which we entered into this conversation that Jesus was having with a, with a high-ranking religious official named Nicodemus. And if you remember, the core of that conversation is that Jesus the Messiah leads us to experience a radical rebirth or a new birth. Now, we wanna keep that in mind, in particular, that one of the things they talked about or that Jesus taught in that dialogue is that he as Messiah has the authority, and that is a key word for our time this evening, has the authority to save us from God's wrath, to save us from sin and death, to save us from condemnation. Jesus the Messiah has the authority to give us life. And that sets the foundation for where we're going to go as we finish John chapter 3, as our scene shifts away from Nicodemus and back to the very first witness, so to speak, that testified that Jesus is Messiah, and that's John the Baptist. And I am so excited and privileged to be able to teach on this this weekend, because many of you have heard me say for years that aside from Jesus, John the Baptist is my personal hero and my favorite account in all of scripture. And in particular, it's because of this passage we're going to cover this weekend. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. you got your apps, turn them up. If you're following along in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Baptist and the Messiah. We're going to be going to John chapter 3 and starting at verse 22. And again, Rocky Peak, I hope you're ready to mark up your Bibles or to highlight them because there is a lot there. So starting at verse 22 of chapter 3, after this, so linking this with the conversation with Nicodemus, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, this was before, would you underline or highlight the word before? This was before John was put into prison. And so let's stop right there. And so the apostle John is kind of setting up the scene and giving us some context. And so this is still very early in the public ministry of Jesus, but we're seeing that he is gaining a following. People are coming to hear him and people are being baptized. And it's likely that the baptism that the Jesus and his disciples are doing is similar to John the Baptist in that it's a baptism of repentance. If you remember, John's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now what's interesting is that in chapter four, it tells us that Jesus himself didn't baptize anyone. And it's very likely that he didn't do it because imagine the elitism that could happen if somebody went, oh, you were baptized by one of the disciples? I was baptized by Jesus. So Jesus, knowing us, decided to avoid that. But what I want to highlight is that editorial comment by the apostle that this is taking place before John the Baptist was arrested. And so what we're going to read is a prequel, so to speak, to the ministry of Jesus. Because in the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
they, they, Jesus's ministry in those gospels begins, or rather the account of that begins in Galilee, in the northern region after this. And so John is filling in some context of what happens before that. And so what's kind of cool is we see how the gospels complement each other, and he's giving his readers kind of a chronological note for this. And what I really appreciate about this is that it paints a picture of sometimes we don't often see of a partnership between Jesus and John the Baptist. See, Jesus and John the Baptist spoke the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. John had been baptizing through that message and now Jesus is doing this as well. They are partners in the same mission. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, when King Herod, after he has murdered John the Baptist, he refers to the fact that in public perception, people see a link between Jesus and John. In fact, there were some that thought that Jesus was a resurrected John. And where do these images come from? Because they had a partnership that we often don't realize, but the apostle is filling us in on this. And so as we continue, verse 25 an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man, would you underline that phrase, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, would you underline that, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. All right, let's stop right here because we just sense a conflict, don't we? So the apostle doesn't tell us who this Jew is nor what the conflict was between him and John's followers. Likely, because we've seen this again earlier in the Gospel of John, this was a conflict over the idea of baptism in and of itself. We see that to the average Jewish person at the time, John's baptism didn't make a lot of sense. What was common and what was understood is that you baptized Gentiles, non-Jewish people, when they converted into Judaism, or there were at times ceremonial washings before serving or praying when it came to Jewish rituals, and some of those could even include a full immersion. But the idea of baptizing fellow Jews for the sake of repentance, that was really new, and that was really confusing. And so it's thought that that was the argument between John's followers and whoever this person was. And again, we don't know for sure, but it seems pretty likely that John's followers were defending their mission, that John's followers were defending their call, that John's followers were defending the ministry that they were a part of. Now that now led to another conflict. It led to a conflict directly with Jesus himself. Because imagine, here are John's followers kind of defending their ministry going, hey, we're doing something good. We're doing something that God has called us to. And they're looking across the way going, and people are going to that guy. Now think about how they describe Jesus. John the Baptist has clearly identified Jesus as Messiah. 
We have seen that John the Baptist is not hesitant in pointing and telling people that is God's chosen. That is God's anointed. It's likely that John has recounted what he experienced at Jesus' baptism, that the Spirit of God came and remained on Jesus multiple times. It's likely it would be unbelievable to think that these followers have not heard that from John. And yet, how do they refer to Jesus? That man that you testified about. No, not us. You testified about him. Everyone is going over to him. Now, something I say often when I teach is that there's a lot of times when we encounter this whatever we want to call it, naivety, pride, sinful attitudes in people in scripture. And it can be very easy for us to be judgy, to go, come on, guys, what are you doing? And while there is an appropriateness to that response, it's easy to become judgy and not realize that they're actually far more relatable to you and I than we care to admit. And so we actually need to unpack this a little further and understand what is going on here. See, the disciples of John the Baptist, they weren't your average Jew at the time. See, John was not an average religious leader. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. John had come to prepare the way for the Messiah. John was doing something radically bold, new, confusing, and he was rattling the social and religious norms of the time. And so to not only accept the message that John the Baptist was teaching, but to become a follower, a disciple, a partner in the ministry that John the Baptist was doing. It meant that you had experienced a new depth. You had experienced a new passion, a new fire when it came to pursuing the Lord God. It means that you were sacrificing a level of comfortability. You were sacrificing a level of relationship, a level of acceptance. It means that you were experiencing surrender. These are people that genuinely loved God. These are people that were willing to respond and sacrifice for the sake of God. And yet what's happening is that Jesus now crossed a line. Jesus now represented a disruption to how they believed things should be. Jesus had crossed a line. And when I think about that, I realize, oh my goodness, I am them. We are them, aren't we? See, as Christ followers, we are all called to follow Jesus with a whole heart. As Christ followers, that means that we are called to release and surrender to the will of Jesus, our King, And now we can relate with their struggle that there are some areas in our life in which surrendering control, in which releasing to Jesus feels easy and natural and we're compassionate for it. But we also know full will that there are some areas that releasing control to Jesus, whether it's areas of relationship, whether it's areas of sexuality, of substances, of hopes and dreams, of anger, whatever it may be, there are areas in which Jesus says, I want that area. And we go, that's a lot. 
See, there are many times when I find myself, and maybe you can relate, where I go, Jesus, I am all in with you as long as you don't cross this line. As long as you don't ask for that area. As long as you don't disrupt how I strongly believe things should be. What's that area in your life right now that is causing you to go, everyone is going to him and that's wrong. Now everyone is an exaggeration, right? John was still drawing people. It was a distortion, but in that, we can feel their envy and confusion and anger and fear. And again, we can relate to that, that when we feel rattled, when we feel that Jesus is crossing a line, those emotions, they begin to distort reality, don't they? Those, those emotions begin to teach us a lie. And so what do we do is we fight. We begin to wrestle with Jesus for control. And so they've presented the conflict and now John the Baptist is gonna respond and it's in his response again is why I love this man. Verse 27, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. And so as part of this reality distortion, they had inflated who John is as their leader. And we all have a tendency to do that with human leaders, don't we? And so John is bringing them back to earth going, whoa, I am not the Messiah. And you have heard me say that. A friend of mine has said over and over again, and I love it, that one of the reasons why he loves John the Baptist is that John is very clear on who he is and who he is not. And we're not gonna go over that, but there in your note sheet, I put three times in which John testified that he is not the Messiah, but that Jesus is. Verse 29, John gives this metaphor. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy. Would you underline that? Full of joy and is full of joy when he hears that bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. Would you underline that? That joy is mine and it is now complete. Verse 30, and this is the exclamation point verse for our section. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. Would you underline, highlight, box, flame, arrow, sticky note, set an alarm on your phone, whatever you need to remind you of that verse regularly because that is the foundation of not just our passage, but to me, I strongly believe this is the foundation of what defines what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. And so let's back up a little bit. So John gives this metaphor of what it means to be the friend of the bridegroom. Think of it kind of like a best man. And so culturally, in their culture, to be the best man meant that you actually were a vital part of carrying out, of executing the wedding ceremony. The wedding wouldn't happen without you and your hard work and your effort. But remember, the focus isn't on you. It's on the couple. 
And so he's painting this picture that as the best man, so to speak, his joy is in doing the work and seeing the focus come to the one who he was preparing this for, to the main event, Jesus the Messiah. And so what I love is that John is really telling us that his joy is for all he come in contact with to not only see, but to truly experience that not only is Jesus Messiah, but Jesus the Messiah is in charge. He's the focus and he's very ta- is strategic by using wedding imagery. Again, in the Old Testament, wedding imagery was often tied to the coming Messiah. He is once again testifying to who Jesus is. And then he makes that beautiful declaration. He must become greater. This is a beautiful declaration of authority. He is declaring that Jesus has all authority. He is saying that I am placing myself under the leadership and authority of Jesus the Messiah. And I want you to catch that this is not a grumbling concession. This is not him begrudgingly giving up, okay, you can be in charge. This is a declaration that is a wholehearted embrace of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. By saying that Jesus the Messiah must become greater, what John is saying that I submit to you. I will not always understand and I will not always agree with how you choose to do things. But I commit to submit because you are Messiah and I am not. Now, as we go into verse 31, the final verses of this chapter is what's often called a doxology. Think of it as a liturgy, like as a poem of praise that is speaking as to the beauty of Jesus as Messiah. And what's interesting is we're not fully sure if this is John the Baptist himself, if these are his, his words, or if this is John the Apostle that is adding an editorial epilogue, so to speak. But as we go into it, verse 31, the one who comes from above, that's Jesus, is above all The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Now let's stop right there. So the point is being made that Jesus comes from above and we come from the earth. Again, this is imagery from Genesis with Adam being created from the earth. And because we come from the earth, we have limitations, As created beings, we have limitations. And we could stand up here and rattle off the numerous limitations we have. But for the context of what we're going on, one of the primary limitations we have is our sight, is in how we see, is in what we see, is in the fact that we are limited by what is right in front of us. It is difficult to see past what is our present, to understand the future, let alone how God is working through it. And so he is reminding us that Jesus, the Messiah, has no such limitations. And it's important that we remember that because pridefully, I forget. Pridefully, we forget that we have limitations, don't we? 
Pridefully, we want to believe this lie that I have no limitations. That's why my way, my plan, my will, that's why it's better than God's. And we need the word to put us back in our place. And the reality is that when you open up our eyes, there's a lot of things in our lives that put us back in our place. And I shared this several years ago, but I thought it'd be appropriate to bring it up again. So I got a little thing of Visine, eye drops right here. And to most of you, you see this and go, yeah, it's a thing of eye drops. To me, this is a reminder of my human limitations. Do you know why? Because I'm one of those that I am a massive baby when it comes to having to put in eye drops. Like, I'm not simply difficult. I am a baby when it comes to anything that has to do with your eyes. I have never liked, it grosses me out, the thought of touching your eye, the thought of anything being near your eye. I am thir- I'm about to be 39 years old. I have been to the optometrist once in my life, and I will never go back to that horror show. Because she was amazingly sweet and patient until for the fifth time she had to tell me to put my head back in and she tried to puff the air in my eye. I intentionally keep one of these in sight because it reminds me that I am not as all-powerful as I think I am. Jesus does not have the limitations that I do. And so this doxology continues. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Oh, excuse me, verse 32. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Would you underline that? It's talking about how Jesus and his truth is rejected. But no one accepts his testimony. Verse 33, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Would you underline that? The certified that God is truthful. You know, I was talking to my friend Bree earlier this week and I liked how she referred to the truth of God that the truth about Jesus is non-negotiable. We often want to bargain but the truth about Jesus truly is non-negotiable. And so what we're being reminded here is that in rejecting the truth about Jesus, we are rejecting the truth about God the Father. We are rejecting his authority. And when we reject the truth, we reject reality. And we begin to live in a lie. And so it continues in verse 34. For the one who God sent, again, Jesus the Messiah, speaks the word of God, for words of God, for God gives the spirit without limits. Would you underline that? Without limits. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Would you underline that? Eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. And so again, we talk about this issue of Jesus not having limits. In chapter one, John the Baptist testified that the spirit of God, the authority of God, not only came down to Jesus, but it rested and remained on him. And now we see as we ended that chapter that it ties to the conversation with Nicodemus, doesn't it? In which we see that the authority of God leads us to experience life and not condemnation. If you were with us last week, this is what Michael taught in which he said that the love of God 
God is real, but the danger is real as well. And it's through a greater Jesus that we experience life instead of death. Amen? And so thank you for your word, Jesus. And so as we leave our passage today, what I want to do just with the time we have left is this entire series has been about how this gospel is revealing the truth of who Jesus is. And I think this section in particular reveals two key truths, not only about what it means that Jesus is Messiah, but how we are to see and understand the authority that Jesus has because he's Messiah. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Redefining Authority, and your fill-in is this. Jesus has God's authority. Jesus has God's authority. And something we've been saying throughout this entire journey in the Gospel of John is we need to often stop, take a breath, and approach terms, words, concepts, scriptures with fresh eyes. Because I realize that the word authority by itself can be a stumbling block for many people depending on their experiences with how they view it, how they've been treated, how they use authority themselves. And so again, we need to back up and say, what is God's, what exactly is God's authority and how do we paint a picture of it? And I think one of the best ways to do that is if we reflect on how the Bible itself opens. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we are introduced to God as a brilliant creator. We are introduced to a creator that has an authority that you and I never will or never could have. Because what we see in those opening chapters is God has the authority to create, not with any sort of struggle or failure, simply by speaking. He creates. But not only that, in those opening chapters, we see that God has the authority to reign and rule over that which he creates. And what it means to reign is that he has the authority to determine how things should be. And again, the vision of God is for us to experience good. If you remember in the opening of Genesis, as we would reflect on his work, he would say, and it was good and it was good. Ultimately, what we see is that God has the authority to give life to his creation, to people, and not just in this life, but for eternity in the next as well. And that is the destructiveness of sin, that sin is an outright rejection of God's authority in our lives. And the deception in that is when we reject God's authority, what we are really doing is we are rejecting life. We are rejecting the source of our life. And this is spiritual warfare at its deepest level. This is what the enemy wants. Later in John chapter 10, Jesus is gonna describe the enemy that he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And what the enemy wants is to see death come on all of us, to see death come into our culture, to see death come into our relationships, to see death come into our world. Because when we go back to his earliest temptation in the garden, when he was talking to them about about 
rejecting God's authority, their response was, but God said if we didn't do this, we would die. And the enemy's response was, surely you won't die. His goal is death. And he accomplishes it through rejection. Reject God's authority. And yet, it was after our rejection in Genesis chapter three that while there were significant consequences and even a separation, God did tell us that one day one would come that would crush the head of the snake in the authority of God would crush the head that represents sin, death, and darkness and would bring life back to a broken creation. And then as we fast forward, we see that that person to come is Jesus. There in your note sheet, from the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And as we've established the authority to give life and the authority to rule over all. And we see this throughout the life of Jesus, even at the very beginning. There in your note sheet from Mark chapter one, the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Would you underline that? As one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In talking about that verse, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says this, that Jesus didn't just clarify something that they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures in, a way, in the way the teachers of the law did. His listener sensed that some, somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author and it left them dumbfounded. And so when we say that Jesus has God's authority, do we see that this is a massive paradigm shift for us in our hearts and in our souls? Because what we realize is that to be under the authority of Jesus, to be under his leadership, to pursue obedience to the life that Jesus has modeled, has called us to live, is not simply to check a box to say that we are good little Christians, but to be under the authority of Jesus is the path to life. And Christ followers, we need to not only be refocused of this, but we need to cling to this truth. We need to cling that it is the authority of Jesus that leads us to life because we know full well the struggle that at times that is easy and seemingly natural and at times that could be the hardest thing we have ever been asked to do. Remember the idea of a line. There are gonna be times in our life when the idea, the thought, the calling of submitting to the authority of, of Jesus is gonna feel like the opposite of life. It's gonna feel like we're losing everything we thought defined us, everything we thought gave us life. We're gonna feel tempted to reject his authority so that we can experience life. We are going to wrestle with God, even though we're wrestling because we want the same thing. We just disagree passionately on how to get there. And we need to cling to this truth that it is only under the authority of Jesus that we experience life. Let me illustrate it with a couple of key things that Jesus calls us to be, but at many times they represent the line we don't want him to cross. See, in Luke chapter 17, 
Jesus teaches on forgiveness. And it's one of many times in particular that the New Testament teaches that as Christ followers, we are now being empowered to be a people of forgiveness because we have received a great forgiveness. And so Jesus says specifically about our church family that if your brother or sister has sinned against you, we'll rebuke them. Now that part sounds really good, right? (laughs) Rebuke them. But he goes on and says, but if they repent, forgive them. And hearing that for many of us is a line. Think about just these last 12 months. There's a lot of us in here that we have been deeply hurt by people that we called friend. There's a lot of us that have been deeply hurt by people that we called a brother or sister in Christ. There's a lot of us that have been deeply hurt by our church or by someone in our life group, maybe our leader themselves. And maybe we felt hurt for right reasons and maybe for prideful reasons. But here we are with the words of Jesus. Who are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be a people that are learning to forgive. And often the tendency is to focus on what we're gonna lose. But if I let go, they haven't made it better. They are still gonna continue down this path. If I let go of control in this situation, that's not, I'm gonna lose. I'm gonna lose more than I put in. And again, that's the tendency. That's the old way of thinking. But what Jesus is saying is that under his authority, by doing what he modeled, by doing what he called, by doing the difficult thing that we can only do through the supernatural power of him in us, by learning to forgive as he has forgiven us, we don't lose. We experience life. Another example is in John chapter 13. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And in that, he radically serves us, a people that are flawed, a people that make mistakes, a people that frankly don't deserve it. Again, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But then he gets up and he calls us to do the same thing, to lay down our lives to sacrifice, to lay down our right to be right, our freedoms to serve those that do not deserve it. And again, for many of us, that can be a line. Jesus, no, I'm, I'm okay with serving and serving radically these people or those people in my life or those people that think the same way I do or this, but no, 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 no. Going over there, doing that, washing the feet, so to speak, of, quote, them, that's a line. Jesus, I would lose. Jesus, I would lose so much. I would lose comfortability. I would lose emotional energy and exhaustion. I would lose freedom. I would lose rights. Whatever it may be, again, the tendency is to focus on what we're gonna lose, but remember the truth that John the Baptist has modeled for us is that when we place ourselves under the authority of Jesus, it's not about what we're gonna lose because we're gonna gain life. Life when we obey. And that actually leads to the second fill and the second truth is that Jesus' authority leads to joy. Hmm. And that sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? But again, we see it modeled and to understand that, we need a deeper understanding of joy because as I talk about spiritual warfare, one of the things that the enemy has tricked us in is that we've settled for a really bad understanding of what joy is. 
We often view joy as being the same thing as simply being happy or comfortable. But to be happy, to be comfortable is completely dependent on our circumstances and it's also temporary. And so when it comes to joy, often that's all we could think is what makes me happy, what makes me comfortable and I wanna fight for this. But understand the gift that Jesus gives us is joy. He wants to give us something far deeper, far bigger, far more than what we can see. He wants to give us an overwhelming gift. And I can picture it like this. You got a big old jar of cinnamon here, right? And again, for a lot of you, this is just like an average seasoning. For me, this is my life. I adore cinnamon. And I will put it on everything I possibly can, even things that might be considered inappropriate to put cinnamon on. But I won't just put a dab of cinnamon on things. See, I think there's a difference between me and normal people, that there's people that understand what an appropriate level of cinnamon is, and then there's people like me that I would describe my palate as aggressively cinnamon, is what I want. I'm not satisfied until I'm overwhelmed by it. And the reason I bring that up is not just to give us a moment to breathe but it really illustrates a beautiful truth that the joy that Jesus wants to give us is overwhelming, is deep, but we can't experience it without his authority. And so like I said earlier, we settled for a small definition of joy, a true definition of joy has nothing to do with our circumstances, but it has everything to do with who Jesus is. Joy is rooting our lives in the non-negotiable, that Jesus is Messiah, that Messiah is here, and Messiah is giving us life in all circumstances. And what's beautiful about that is that when we are rooted in the non-negotiable, when life shakes everything up, it cannot take away our joy because it cannot change who Jesus is. There is still joy in the tears and the sorrow. There is still joy in the anger and frustration. There is still joy in the failure and the despair. There is still joy in the confusion and the disagreement. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we are told blessed are those that mourn. We are called to mourn because there is still joy in that. In James, in the New Testament, we're told consider it pure joy when you experience trials, not because we are to minimize the pain that we feel, but despite what is going on in our lives, Jesus is still Messiah and he is still in control. I like how it's put there in your note sheet. I kind of quoted it a little bit earlier that John finds his joy not in grudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent, but in wholeheartedly embracing God's will and the supremacy it assigns to Jesus. And so Rocky Peak, I think as we leave this, as we leave this passage, we have a very important opportunity. It is our opportunity and our privilege to now step up and model for our world not only what 
genuine joy is, but where we experience it. We live in a world that is having joy taken from it from the, by the enemy. We live in a world in which the church is having its joy stripped of it by the enemy. And so church, we need to rise up and fight back. But the way we fight back is not the way that the enemy fights with anger, destruction, disunity. We fight back by grabbing onto the authority of Jesus, by remembering who he is, the truth that he has already won the battles. And we fight back by experiencing a joy that can be found in nothing else but the person of Jesus. And so as we close our time, there's just on the end of your note sheet, there's many ways to fight. There's many ways to experience his joy, but I wanna highlight one very key one, and that's this, to memorize scripture. And I talked about this several months ago, and I wanna bring this up again because I think Often that warfare, that battle that happens between accepting and rejecting the authority of God happens in our minds. And the truth of the matter is, whoever has the loudest voice in your head is whose authority you're under. Whoever has the loudest voice in your head is whose authority you're under. And so an intentional step is to memorize scripture because what happens when we do is that we take the voice of the Messiah, of King Jesus, we put it in our heads and the voice of Jesus begins to silence the other voices and it speaks life directly into our minds, our hearts, and our souls. You know, this wasn't always a common practice of mine. And a little over a year ago, it felt like out of the blue that the Lord is like, you really need to focus on memorizing scripture. And I didn't understand why. And so many of the scriptures he called me to memorize all had a similar theme. They were about God leading when you don't know where you're going. And I was like, okay, God. And then COVID happened. And everything within those last 12 months And I realized looking back, oh, during these last 12 months, there have been a lot of voices competing for authority in my life. God, you were preparing me with your voice to stay focused on you and you alone. And so there in your note sheet, my charge is pretty simple. Memorize John 3.30. He must become greater, I must become less. It's a reminder It's a celebration. It's a declaration of who Jesus is, of what it means to be under his authority and what it means to experience life and the joy that comes with it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your authority. And again, that might sound like an odd thing to give thanks for, but as now through through the gospel of John, through your word, we've gained together a bigger view of what it means, a bigger understanding of what it means to be under your leadership, to listen and follow, as we often say here at Rocky Peak, that it's your authority, it's through obeying you, through living the life you are empowering us to live by following your model is how we experience life 
to the fullest, as you're going to tell us in John chapter 10. By living under your authority is how we stand up and win the spiritual battles. By living under your authority, by experiencing the joy that can only come from you, is how we, is how we fight against the lies of the enemy, is how we silence the other voices in our head and replace it with the true king, the one voice of authority above all else. And so Jesus, we need to submit. And I'm sure as we've been going through your word, for many of us, there's been a line that's been revealed or that we've been reminded of. And for all of us, that journey of submission is gonna look different, but we know you are here and we might feel nervous or cautious or confused or unsure of how to proceed, but you will lead us, you will will guide us, and so we as your church say, Jesus, we let you in. Cross the line, shatter the walls, take what we've tried to hold on so dearly and make something new of it. And through that, we will experience your greater joy. And it is in your name, Jesus the Messiah, that we all said, amen.